Good afternoon or good evening, depending upon where you are in the world. Um, good morning, actually. What's that? <laughs> it's morning in New Zealand. Morning, oh, is it morning? <laughs> good morning. Um, I'm Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore, and we're delighted to have Michael Bennett with us here to discuss his brand new book, Better the Blood, which I have in stereo right here. Really, really compelling uh, cover art. Very powerful. Um, and I'm going to be monitoring the, if you have comments or questions for Michael, go ahead and put them in. And um, Barbara usually summons me back on screen towards the end of the hour, and I would be happy to ask any questions. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you very much. Patrick, can you hold up that book one more yeah, time? Yeah, absolutely. Because I am told that actually this gorgeous cover was painted by your Maori artist daughter, Mahina. Is that right? That's right. Um, so kia ora everyone and everyone that's uh, zooming in on Facebook. Um, and it's such a, a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, my daughter Mahina is, a, is an artist and, and, and um, she worked uh, with the American publishers with Grove Atlantic to, uh, to, to render a, um, a symbol that's really pivotal to the book. The, the symbol is a recurring theme through the book that, that, that relates to the killer's mission. Um, and it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Our family was very involved collectively in the in the book my daughter uh is a poet and she wrote the rap of um that's sung at one point by uh, one of the characters in the book um my daughter Masaraki did that my daughter Mahina did the cover uh I worked a lot with my partner Jane on developing the characters and so it was a bit of a family affair very nice as I understand it this book was actually published in the UK last year by Simon & Schuster over there. I mean, international publishing is so fascinating because, you know, we wind up with oftentimes, most of the time, in fact, multiple publishers, and they all have their different concepts of how to present the book, the cover art, you know, the design. Um, you have to deal with translations, which can really alter a book slightly, no matter how great the translator is, it never reads quite the same as if yeah. it were in the original language. So Michael, how many languages do you know of that Better the Blood has been translated into so far? Yeah, no, I agree. It's been a really fascinating process that, um, yeah, we came out first with Simon & Schuster in the UK, then Simon & Schuster in um, uh, Australia and New Zealand. Um, and then the US publication is today or yesterday mm -hmm. um and now we've got um uh nine translations so far nine different languages um which is uh really kind of like um i still can't really get my head around it that um and it's really i guess i'm i'm very complimented and pleased that that my book which i think is i was really worried that it was uh so specific to new zealand because it's very much about um New Zealand and very much of its location and of our culture of the Maori culture and the and, and the New Zealand history um, and I, what's been really pleasing to me I guess is that it's a case where if you are very specific and very culturally true to a story it has a universality to it that you know if it, it, it's able to translate because um, people might not actually know be able to recognize in their own lives the things that I'm talking about or the experiences that my characters are going through but in a universal kind of a way uh, it, you know it, it resonates and it finds truth with with other cultures which is complementing yeah well there's no question I've been doing this for 33 years and it's really fascinating to me how global um, publishing has become mystery was really primarily a British and American 
art, you know, literary form. And um, when I started the store, we used to import or export rather loads of books to Japan, for example, because they didn't really have a, a large mystery writing community of their own. And they loved American crime fiction. That was actually even true of Australia. The first time I went to Australia and I went into an Australian bookstore, almost all the books in the crime section anyway, were American. At vast expense, I might ask, like $35 for a paperback. It was wow. But, you know, things have, have changed. And I think that Zoom, this very technology that you and I are using to have this conversation, has increased the globalization of publishing and made people um, more willing to read books set in other cultures, more familiar with mm -hmm. them. But also, Michael, there's a, at least in the United States, and I suspect elsewhere as a consequence of all that, there's a very strong movement called hashtag own voices or indigenous stories and so right. forth. And, yeah. you know, I think um, part of the reason perhaps that your U.S. publisher is so interested in your book, which is wonderful on many levels, is that it presents a different indigenous voice, so to speak, than yeah. um, an author like David Heska um trying to i never get his name right it's all for anyway uh, um we have David a hisker henbley widen that's <laughs> it thank you very much yeah. um and other other authors here that are presenting stories um you know in their in their own culture incorporating their own language um yeah. I have been, as I've mentioned to you, to New Zealand many times, and actually, when Poison Pen Press was, my husband and I ran it, we published an autobiography of Niall Marsh, who was really the only New Zealand oh, writer yes. that yeah. most of us really knew, and I have been to visit her home, it's, you know, outside Christchurch, oh, wow. and, um, and had a tour of it, and they were, they were desperate for fundraising to try to keep her home going, but yeah. With the exception of three novels that she said in New Zealand, her her book was, I mean, her work was British, as yeah. you know, and she wrote it traveling back and forth by ship from New Zealand to to yeah. England. She's um, remarkable. I think she's, um, at a certain point, she and Agatha Christie were very similar sort of in terms of sales and world renown. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and you're right, she has a very international voice. Um, but she's definitely a Kiwi. My mum was actually taught by her at university. She she uh, she ran a theatre group at university, and my mum was in a Shakespearean play, and and um, right. uh, and Dame Naya Marsh was her uh, director, which is kind well. Of she was actually more interested in theatre in many ways than the books. I think the books were a way of passing the time on her long sea voyages. But when she was yeah. at home um, in the South Island, you know, she was very very active in yeah. the theater. She didn't leave any direct family behind, which is one reason, you know, the status of her home was kind of confusing. But yeah. anyway, I guess one of my questions for you, you know, um, is can you tell us, I've read a few books by New Zealand authors, but they're somewhat hard to come by. You know, who do you see in addition to yourself um, as potentially a rising literary star from New Zealand that the rest of us should know about? Um, we have I mean, we have a kind of extraordinary um, um, literary heritage, to be honest. I mean, we've had a, a number of Booker Prize winners, um, Kerry Holm, um, a Māori descent writer from the west coast of the South Island who died recently. Um, um, we, you, you know, I think what's interesting to me is that, uh, you, you know, right back from Catherine Mansfield and 
any number of um, great names, you know, New Zealand has a way of boxing above its weight in so many fields. <laughs> um, you know, if you, if you tally up our, our gold medal scores at the Olympics, um, if we were the United States, we would have got about a thousand gold medals <laughs> at any Olympics for our, you know, per, rata, per, per population ratio. And I think, you know, filmmaking, literature, music, um, uh, there's this maybe there's something in the water here, but we do kind of tend to box above our weight a little bit. And and I think so, it's the same in literature. I think what's the, the interesting thing is that in terms of mystery and crime fiction, which is kind of like it's always been my go to, um, I've never had that many, you know, in terms of uh, the, the things that I'm interested both in consuming and making. Um, there, there, there's not a lot of uh, reference points for me in terms of New Zealanders. Um, yeah, of course, there's Dame Naya Marsh, uh, and, and that's quite, you know, there's been quite a few moons since um, her work. Um, there's uh, JP Pomari, interestingly, I'm, I'm not sure if you've read his work, but he's yeah. an, another uh, Māori writer from New Zealand who's, who's also interested in crime and thriller. Um, there's yeah, but there's um, there's not a long list of uh, of us really working in that field, and so uh, you know, which is a shame because I think um, you know it's a, it's crime thriller writing. I think is can be is obviously it's a very visceral kind of a literary form, um, but I think it can also uh, it's a way of. Uh, I mean, to me, what I'm trying to do with my books is to use a genre that's very audience friendly that reaches out to an audience but at the same time uh to get deeper things to talk about deeper things which you know to use that genre storytelling you, you know the high adrenaline high octane crime thriller genre as a bit of a trojan horse that that lets me explore bigger issues with the audience uh in a way that um you know opens up the the ability to talk about other stuff about history and culture and and colonization and and so on yeah oh it does absolutely i agree i mean one of the advantages of crime fiction is the structure i mean you know there's a, a fairly specific structure for crime stories and i think that makes it easier in many ways to explore well for example you have an historical event that is central to this book which we will talk about but um if you make an excellent point. The user-friendly part is very good. I had a discussion last night with Brad Meltzer, who has a nonfiction book that could, in many ways, be a, a an historical international thriller. It's based on real events that took place, a Nazi plot to assassinate the three Allied leaders in Tehran in 1943. But um, by telling it in the present tense and treating it as though he were writing fiction, it will attract, I think, the same people who read thrillers. And, yeah. um, you know, if you had decided to talk about the crime, which we'll get to in your book in like that, I think it would have a different audience. But by incorporating it into a modern story with your detect your Auckland detective, Hannah, um, or is it pronounced Hannah? Which is it? Hannah. Hannah. Yeah. Hannah. Hannah. Okay. Um, you know, you're you're going to draw in more readers, um, yeah. and you will probably have a more visceral impact through the fiction, even though the actual event is true. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know, I I love the fact that 
um, there's a lithograph that, um, you know, commemorate, commemorate can't be the right word, um, depicts, you know, yeah. part, part of what happened. So you have an actual artifact, you know, of the time that that you can deal with. There's a wonderful museum at the very bottom of the island, um, which is, um, it's where, you know, the, the guy that rode his um, motorcycle in Utah, I can't think of his mm. name at the moment. His, Down in Invercargill, yeah. Uh, yeah, in Invercargill, the, you know, the, on the way into Invercargill, but yeah. it has a very dramatic movie um, that we watched about the arrival of, I think it was the British, to New Zealand, and it was the, I think it was the seals that um, they were there to, you know, um, slaughter the seals for the fur trade, and yeah. that was kind of the opening salvo for yeah. colonizing New Zealand, and that's right. Um, it's a really, I, I don't know that many of us really think about how some of the um, empire was acquired, you know, but um, here in this country, it was led by trade, you know, Henry Hudson and uh, John Jacob Astor and all it was a lot of it's depending on what people wore. It's, yeah. it's astonishing to me that fashion led so much of colonialism, you know, mm. they, they wanted beaver pelts for hats, or they wanted ostrich feathers for clothes or whatever. And New Zealand, yeah. you know, was, there it was, um, kind of untouched. Yes. I, I mean, you're quite right. Food. Seals and seals and whales um, were and and flax, interestingly, uh, I think were some of the the first reasons for um, for ships to come down from the northern hemisphere and from Europe and from uh, the UK. Uh, but eventually, it turned into land. Uh, it was quite deliberately, you know, companies were set up to sell off New Zealand land that they didn't actually possess, <laughs> um, and they uh, and and that brought in an influx, uh, you know, a, a, I guess an unstoppable tidal wave of uh, immigration and colonization from, from the UK. And um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's a story that's repeated all over the world, really. It is yeah. all over the world. And I really love, we're gonna talk about your book in a second, but one of the things I most love about New Zealand um, is the efforts underway to eradicate, not just uh, colonialism, but the species that people brought with them that turn out to be um, unhappy in New Zealand. Weasels and, weasels and stoats and rats. And, right, um, but not it's just quite amazing. that, but, you know, but plants. I mean, I remember somewhere in the South Island um, going to a place where they're actually ripping out all of yeah. the, you know, European um, um, herbivores I mean not herbivores the, the flora I'll get it right in a moment yeah. and, yeah. and you know making sure that we're they're going back to like native trees and so forth and so I think it's not just a question of dealing with colonial history but also dealing with you know imports from other places not native that have had destructive as well as constructive um, you get, so the process that you're talking about we've been trying to replicate in our garden in a small way um so we've taken out We've taken out most of the uh, imported plants, and we've um, we've planted native all around the garden. And it's um, um, on a holistic kind of a level, what it does is that it provides the fruit and the the leaves that um, the native birds and the native insects actually need, that they actually thrive on. Which is, it's beautiful for us. So we've had um, uh, in the last couple of years tui, which are you know beautiful native right. New Zealand birds returning to our garden and um, 
Um, so yeah, it's um, it's a you're, you're absolutely right. It's a process that's going on throughout New Zealand of of um, returning the the plants that the native wildlife need to to survive in. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think it's completely fascinating. So anyway, why don't we talk about your book since that was the actual reason that we got together, but I couldn't resist because I, I'm like a personal um, promoter of New Zealand. <laughs> you know I think it's so great that you've spent so much time in New Zealand, Barbara. It's cool. They haven't even gotten to the wine. <laughs> Originally, yeah, right. when we went, part of the whole deal was to um, to visit Marlborough and, you know, get involved in all the wine. And then, you know, there's... Um, there's a whole Art Deco city because of an earthquake. Yeah. <clears throat> There's so many wonderful things to do. And I'm not even getting into the Lord of the Rings and the whole talking yeah. um, aspect that Peter Jackson um, brought brought to us or, you know, going to yeah. the various fjords like Milford Sound and um, Doubtful Sound, which I think is much more exciting than Milford Sound. It's smaller and more mysterious, but there we are. But we're yeah. in Auckland and Auckland is actually a modern city on the North Island of New Zealand. It's the place where I think all incoming international flights actually have to go. Um, so if you're going to New Zealand, if you're going by plane, um, you're gonna arrive in Auckland. And, um, and there we are. So you decided um, you live in Auckland to set your book in Auckland. So tell us about about your sleuth, Hannah, because she's a really interesting character. Yeah. So yeah, no, um, Blood is um, is a crime thriller set in Auckland today. Auckland is a, a you know a, a beautiful modern city. It's the size of almost exactly the same size as Phoenix, Arizona. Um, but I think it probably when you have a look at what Auckland looks like, it's a bit different. Um, Auckland is the first city since Pompeii that's been built on a live volcanic field and we're surrounded by nearly 50 volcanoes that that um, are not dormant, uh, they could actually take life and um, and and that in, to me that informs in many ways my feeling about the city, it's an extraordinary place but there's energy under the ground that's only a few heartbeats away from erupting, which is the kind of feel that I wanted to invoke in the story. Um, the, the story is about uh, a senior Māori detective in the Auckland CIB, which is our equivalent of your, well, it's, it's the Auckland uh, Criminal Investigation Bureau, um, Hannah Westman. She's a, a brilliant intuitive detective who she makes, early on in the book, she makes, she finds a link between two killings that have happened that have previously not been connected. And what she discovers is that in the 19th century in New Zealand, um, during the colonization of New Zealand by the British, uh, by, by the United Kingdom, um, a British army troop on one of the mountains um, in Auckland city wrongfully and brutally executed a Maori chief. Um, there were six members of the British troop, six soldiers, um, and the two killings that have happened today are descendants eight generations later of two of those soldiers. Six, six members of the troop, two descendants killed, and there's four more descendants that will die unless Hannah finds who it is that is killing them and stops them. So I already mentioned a, um, an artifact that helps develop all this is a lithic no a dug is it a daguerreotype it's a daguerreotype i think i a called it a daguerreotype which is the, the proto the, the original um the, 
the version of photography before photography had a uh, yeah so the, the old version of photography yeah and the, the, so that's a recurring thing through the book is um uh is an image of the six soldiers posed underneath the tree where the uh, maori chief has been hung and it's it's something that the killer has um um, has discovered and has for the killer it becomes I, I guess a touchstone of uh of wanting to put right the um the crime that happened in the 19th century but also you know in many ways uh Māori what the killer identifies is that quite correctly is that uh the colonization of New Zealand didn't just stop in the 19th century the the impact upon Māori uh has has continued to this day we are maori are the um at the bottom of every socio-economic um um indice in new zealand where you know in terms of life expectancy health access to education um in terms of wealth our net wealth is something like a ninth the net wealth of uh, any uh european new zealander um we are the most imprisoned uh indigenous population on the planet 53% of our prison cells are occupied by Māori prisoners, and we're only 14% of the population. So the, the killers, what, what the Māori detective discovers, what Hannah um, Westerman discovers as she is pursuing the killer, is that, that the, killer is, the killer's mission is it's far from psychopathic. The, what the killer is trying to do is to say, what happened to my ancestor on that mountain in the 19th century is still happening to us today and it's time to do something about it um so the closer that hannah gets to pursuing the killer and uh finding who it is and realizing what they're doing the more it becomes not black and white about good and bad for hannah and i hope for the reader um but it becomes she starts to understand what the killer is trying to do and trying to say and she's in many ways becomes torn because she starts to understand that what is being said is true what the tactics being taken to try and put things right she could never agree with and i think the reader could never agree with but at the same time i think uh she begins to find that there's a gray area of this isn't simply a baddie and it's not simply a psychopath uh this person is talking about things that do need to be put right so as she is coming to this realization, does all that make it easier to begin to focus in on who the killer might be? Yeah, at a certain point, um, she's able to put together the pieces that um, um, that uh, lead her to understand who the person is. You know, I'm so being so careful, Barbara, not, not spoiler, not to spoiler. Right. No, I know. <laughs> spoiler the plot. Um, very it's, careful. It's a real tricky one. <laughs> um, well, it is, but you know, if you have a serial killer or a psychopath at large, narrowing that down to any particular yeah. person is really daunting because um, you know there's no logic in, you know, at least in a in a disorganized serial killer, it's completely unpredictable. So, yeah. as a crime writer, your challenge would be to, you know, figure out some way to allow the sleuth to gradually begin to yeah. zero in. And, and, and I guess I guess the the killer in in Bed of the Blood um, probably isn't a disorganized serial killer because I think they are very they have a they have a mission. It's a, you know they're right. making a statement and they're, they're 
they're wanting to open people's eyes and and also in terms of my uh my police officer in terms of hannah um what makes what opens the door to understanding who the person is is that there is actually a connection between her and the killer um a connection from when she was a junior cop and when she was uh involved in she was sent in by the her hierarchy to a a peaceful land protest um and what she comes to to, to remove the, the peaceful land protest is from a place that they were actually entirely justified it was their land um and what she comes to understand over the course of the book is that uh, there is a direct connection between her and the killer because of that day when she was a junior cop and she also comes to understand that the killer is laying breadcrumbs to to her uh he wants the killer wants um hannah to uh to understand what's happening why and who is doing it because there is a direct connection between the killer and her and ultimately hannah realizes that she herself and her family are also in danger from the killings so um we already mentioned that crime fiction is a is a wonderful vehicle through its structure and user-friendly um, approach to um, getting people to, to look at issues like this. This is, Michael, this is your first adult fiction. You are actually the author of um, In Dark Places, which explored an infamous miscarriage of justice, and a young adult graphic novel, Helen and the Go-Go Ninjas, I love the title, <laughs> um, which is a finalist for the 2019 New Zealand book awards. So, you know, um, if you lived here, this would actually, if I could have gotten autographed books from you, this would have been our first <laughs> mystery book of the month. But unfortunately, that requires an author's signature. We couldn't quite over oh, what a shame. the distance. I know, blast. Um, but <laughs> but I think, I think any of you watching that it's really important to, you know, to focus on debut novels. It's important to support the author. It's important for you as a reader to listen to a new voice, to enjoy a new voice and spread the word about a new voice because, you know, in the nature of things, authors are aging just like the rest of us. And we're always looking for new blood, fresh blood, so to speak, <laughs> not in a vampiric way, but just because, you know, it's wonderful to have uh, different stories from different authors. So I really want to encourage you. This is our International Crime Book of the Month um, to buy Better the Blood and support Michael. And with any luck, he's writing another one. But I want to go back and talk a little bit about Hannah because, you know, it's true that she's in her investigation. She's centering in on, on these things. But you've given her a number of handicaps. Let's talk about her. Let's talk about her boss. That's a tricky one. So Hannah, in, in in lots of ways, I think um, she is uh, she's someone that readers can readily identify with. So so Hannah is a a, a woman who's extraordinarily good at her job, but um, but she's working in a industry um, in the police force, which in in New Zealand at least is still extremely male dominated. Um, so no matter how good she is, uh, she's still got to work twice as hard to get half the breaks that her male counterparts um, get. And that's shown to her every day by the fact that her ex-husband um, is who uh, she went through police college with, fell in love, they had a child and then broke up. Uh, and he went on to become a detective inspector 
and is effectively now her boss. Um, so she's she's um, a solo mother with a, a brilliant, extraordinary, talented um, teenage daughter who's uh, socially active and um, but also very willful. And um, early on in the film, or early on in the book, she gets herself arrested um, uh, because she's having she's singing at an illegal um, concert in someone's backyard that's uh, breaking all the noise bar um, all the noise conditions um, uh, and she's um, so in many ways like a you know she's a a, a woman that um, uh, many, that we can identify with and in fact she's based I guess on a lot of people in my life on um, on my mother uh, on aunties you know strong strong women that that did amazing things in in, in the world and and in ways she, she's based on my daughters you know uh, who are both young maori women who are completely comfortable in their skin with their maoriness and uh, with their culture and um so while there's many things about hannah i guess that the reader will readily identify with there's things that i don't think many of us can ever identify with um you know through the course of the novel she finds that it's up to her to to find a serial killer and stop a serial killer before they finish their mission of killing six people um um yeah so uh, and um yeah so i think for me a lot of the um things that i wanted to do with the book was to to build a life around the main character that's that's more than just the job that she's doing the job that she's doing the pursuit of the killer is the engine that drives the book the complexity of her world around her um is i think uh i i, feel, I mean for me it's one of the things that really both you know makes her much more human makes her much more relatable for the reader um and also gives her a longevity because um what you asked just before um uh about what I'm working on, or what you mentioned about what I'm working on next. Yes, th this is the first book in a series. So if readers enjoy it, there's, there's uh, more coming and I hope many more coming. I'm, I'm right in the middle of working on the, the difficult second album right now. Um, once we stop speaking, I'm going back to, um, uh, <laughs> to the keyboard. No. Um, and, but I think you know, the complexity of Hannah's world, the, the layers of what's going on for her, both as a cop and as a human being, is I think what's ultimately going to give uh, legs to her story, and as in the organized series. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me let me assure you that second book syndrome is a well known a well known thing, and <laughs> it is always the most difficult, most of the time, the most difficult book that any author has to write, and it's made harder if there are high expectations because the first novel has been so well received. It gives the author an extra you know, gate, he has to jump in order to make it. It's very, it can be very intimidating. Um, so, you know, don't let, don't let it throw you because- Thank you very much. And, you're and an excellent was... company, I assure you. It happens <laughs> all the time. But so, so, you know, texturing your sleuth. I mean, so often, um, you know, especially if it's a cop um, or sometimes a private eye, you know, there, there are a number of tropes that can be employed you know they're alcoholic they're divorced they're you know whatever it all is um and i think you know to make them human you're right you do need to make them not angels but you know ordinary people 
And I thought you did a really interesting job with Hannah to give her this rebellious child, which can't can't be a foreign concept to very many people. Most of us have had rebellious children. I certainly have. Um, but also, you know, the tension of working um, with the father of this child and um, a former spouse. And what is, and I think it's true of police departments almost all over, since I've traversed so much of the world talking to authors who write novels with cops in them. It's basically a militaristic structure. I mean, it had, you know, it's it's very much a command structure, or at least mm. formal structure. And mm. so, you know, it can be very, and that is even true in some political thrillers. You know, if you've got a spy that works at the CIA, for example, or if you have somebody who's an FBI agent, they're not free agents. You know, they have to work within the context of the of the organization, that mm. culture. And so yeah. Anna, Anna can't just, you know, disregard her yeah. ex, who's her her boss or whatever, and and just launch out on her own as though she were a private eye. And that's a that's a choice she made to make her a cop and work that's in that right. culture rather than um, a private investigator. Yeah. There are damages um... to it because a cop actually has the powers of arrest and can um can summon up evidence the private eye doesn't you know it's not able to do that so yeah. you know if you're choosing which kind of sleuths to have at the outset sometimes people start with a cop and make the cop a private eye and sometimes the private eye enlists in the police department you know i mean i've seen it happen over the course of authors careers that there's no reason that the sleuth can't in fact develop and you know choose another way of going about detecting I just mentioned that in case you decide you might want to do that someday. Now that's really good. And, and I agree that, that it, there's a tension between in Hannah's world that, you know, there's, there's certain people who I think naturally uh, fit into the world of cops, fit into the, you know, what you're talking about in terms of the militaristic uh, hierarchical uh, and, you know, the, the playbook, uh, who, who follow the playbook. Um, Hannah is a free thinker and, um, and, has always has been and is and is much more inclined to follow her instincts as opposed to following the playbook, which is um, another point of tension for her um, with the old school cops around her. Um, for instance, when she goes to a crime scene, of course, all the forensic photographers are there. What she always does is she gets out her sketchbook and she sketches the scene for herself because she she trusts her own instincts and she trusts what she sees with the naked eye um, much more than she trusts a photograph. And she always wants to have that first impression of a crime scene uh, of what it felt like, what it smelt like, um, and the feeling of the place uh, through her own eyes than through a two-dimensional photo photographer's uh, lens. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's, um, um, she's she's in the police department but her way of operating isn't necessarily the way other cops operate right and she has that freedom so you mentioned yourself that you um you're from rotorua not from auckland and for those of you who don't know it rotorua is kind of like yellowstone in the united states oh, I mean, is it? you know <laughs> oh yeah very much so i mean it has you know um the volcanic activity that yellowstone sits on a volcano um, right. You know, and it's possible that one day the whole United States will go up, you know, with, because it would be it would be vast. But 
that's where you get some of the, if you're a tourist in New Zealand, they often take you to Rotorua because in a fairly compressed area, you can see um, volcanic activity and there's um, quite a lot of uh, Maori culture around it. So, you know, they're likely to take you to visit um, a Maori community or, you know, go to a banquet or, you know, visit the various volcanic activity things and all. But I was thinking, you know, in, I don't know the answer to this question entirely, but if she is a cop in Auckland, could you in fact send her somewhere interesting like Rotorua um, and she would still have jurisdiction? Or is that is there a larger force in New Zealand more like our FBI or Scotland Yard where she's a local in the local police, but she couldn't really go over and investigate a case somewhere else? Wellington or somewhere like that? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer to either. What what I'm really lucky about is that um, through my work on the, the first uh, book that you talked about earlier, In Dark Places, which was about a friend of mine who was a young Maori man who um, was wrongfully imprisoned for 21 years for a crime he didn't commit. Um, through investigating the story and becoming part of the, um, I guess, the movement, the fight for freedom for, for Taina, for my friend. Um, I came to work really closely with a number of ex-cops who were disturbed by the story. And um, one ex-cop in particular who left the police and became a private detective uh, and then committed his life essentially to um, getting justice for, for Taina, for this young man. Um, so. It's, I've got a number of, you know, very strong uh, connections with the police force um, and with with former police. Um, to so my, I guess my uh, my database, my 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 black book of references for uh, police procedure um, is pretty uh, deep. Um, and I've also got two nephews who are uh, detectives currently, um, one in the Auckland Police Force and and one who's an armed defenders detective, which is the um, the, the equivalent of your SWAT teams. Um, so, um, I mean, it's an interesting question. Like, uh, absolutely, uh, we are regionally based in terms of the police forces, but um, I, I would believe that that if a detective is pursuing a particular crime, that that I, I don't think we're quite so uh, um, so hard boundaries as you have in terms of your state police systems, which are completely different police forces, as mm -hmm. I understand it. Um, um, we are one police force with different divisions within different areas. So if Hannah is taken to another, if, if a crime takes her into another jurisdiction, I don't think there's that complexity that you would have in America of, uh, you know, not stepping into a different rules and regulations for the... Well, she could always go as a consultant or, you know, just have a friend on the force. I mean, she wouldn't have to be there necessarily. Formally, I was just, um, Jane Harper, who you probably know mm. from her book, The Drive, I have her yeah. coming to see me on February 1st here, which will be really interesting. Oh, wow. Aaron, Aaron Falk, her federal investigator, is now in Australia's yeah. one country. So Jane has been basically touring her readers around different parts of Australia. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm so enamored with different parts of New Zealand. I mean, yeah. Stewart Island is one of my favorite places. I've gone back on the fourth on the ferry from Invercargill, which requires a strong stomach in a in a high yeah. school. Um, yeah. That if if you know it it could be interesting for 
international audiences, maybe more so than your local New Zealand readers, if you were able to occasionally move Hannah out of Auckland yeah, into... It's an, absolutely, that's a really good point. So the second book, which I'm working on now, um, and and to reassure you, I have gotten through the the, um, the, the tricky... Uh, I'm kind of loving it now. I've, oh, I've found the book. Excellent. <laughs> um, but she does... Uh, it is set in a completely different part of New Zealand. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a travel log at all, but it's... Um, and it's entirely justified. She's gone back to her hometown and her home her home tribal area um wow. and uh and it's a complete you know the first book is predominantly set in Auckland which you know is a big modern city 1.7 million people uh but the uh, which has its own landscape and its own environment and its own uh way of being um but yeah the second book it bounces between she has reasons to go back to Auckland but it's very much uh, taking the reader into another part of New Zealand, into um, you know a glorious uh, coastal township, small coastal township with a very different, very different feel to Auckland. Yeah, yeah wonderful. Well, we could go to Napier and you know explore our deco, or we could go down to Stewart Island and visit the Kiwis. We could yeah. go to Wellington, which has one of the world's great museums. I mean, one of the truly great museums. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, or Nelson, which is an art capital, or you know, up north, the Thousand Islands, or Marlborough, the wine country. I mean, it's small. New Zealand is small, but incredibly diverse. It really yeah. is such a remarkable and and. You know, I it's think small population, but actually in land size, um, I think in land size we're we're bigger than the United Kingdom. And well, plus I'm not Island surprised that that you could put the entire United Kingdom into Arizona. Oh my goodness! You really can. No, no, no. Oh, you know, right? It's bigger, and you have you yeah. have two islands, and you know that's sort of fun to cross over from one island to another. And of course, you right are you're right on the Ring of Fire. So, yeah. you know, the possibility of volcanic, or there's a certain suspense yeah. oh. <laughs> about being in New Zealand because you never know for sure whether it's going to just suddenly go up. We have this thing that we have a, a, um, a, a seismic, uh, the Seismic Bureau has, uh, uh, you can log online every day. And, and you know, right. every day there's literally thousands of earthquakes across New Zealand. Um, not often that they're five on the Richter scale or higher, but um, it's just constantly. <laughs> the ground here is constantly trembling. And, it really uh, is. Yeah. If you go down to visit the museum in Wellington called Te Papa, they actually, you can go down and look underneath it, the foundations, and they show you that there are enormous advances in earthquake construction that have been used to preserve that museum. It's sort of the yeah. equivalent of going to Holland and seeing the incredible uh, hydraulic, you know, that the engineering yeah. that the Dutch have learned to, yeah. to deal with water. And as the seas are rising, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of things that that haven't gotten as much attention maybe as they should have, like hydraulic engineering or, you know, seismic activity or all that are going to be really interesting. It's happening right now in California. And for the very first time I read today, either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, that someone in Santa Cruz has finally said, you know, maybe we need to move people away from the coast. Because mm. the 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 ocean, the damage and so forth is mm. becoming so constant and so real. Maybe mm. people shouldn't really have beachfront property now. Mm. Mm. You know, the highway, mm. the whole bit. And I was thinking back to my trip down the West Coast Highway of New Zealand. You know, it's hard to know how it's all going to go. But crime fiction is mm. so great because you can explore all this. Why don't we call Patrick up to see if we have any questions or comments from the audience? 
we know that Michael's writing a second book. So that's really great news. Um, yeah, let's see here. We have, um, well, we have a couple of the standard questions like, you know, who are some of your influences? Um, yeah, that's um, that's a great question. So um, I think what a, a really influential moment for me was when a, as a 10 year old, my big brother, Bruce and his new girlfriend, Tui came back to, they were studying in Christchurch. Um, uh, which is a big city in the South Island. I was in the South Island. I was being brought up in the South Island. I came back from university. Bruce was studying psychology and he brought back a book called Abnormal Psych, the textbook of Abnormal Psychology. Tui was studying liter English literature and she brought back uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Um, and um, so as a 10 year old, I spent summer reading both of those books cover to cover. I'm not sure who in my family thought it was a great idea to allow a 10 year old to read either of those books, but I devoured them. And when Bruce and Tui went back to university, um, I hid them and so they couldn't take them back. Um, and in many ways, like both of those books, although they're, they're so incredibly different, like I don't know if you've, you, I mean, I'm sure you've read, in, um, but I'm not sure if you've read the textbook of abnormal psychology, but they're both, I think they're both glimpses into the dark places of the human mind um you, you know we are capable of such glory and such magnificence and we are capable of such depravity and such uh pain um and that was really influential for me in many ways in, in terms of you know just developing an incredible curiosity about how the human mind becomes so different and goes to such extreme places. Um, I then went to university ultimately and studied psychology before I studied uh, filmmaking and writing and so on. And um, um, so those, if I point back to one thing, it's it's those two books uh, that that were pivotal in, in both in my curiosity about the human mind, but also Truman Capote's style of writing um, was, incredibly influential on me like the way that he in you know in cold blood for those who haven't read it you simply have to read it uh is about the killing of a, a farming family in kansas the the clutter family i think that they were and uh by two drifters and truman capote's developed it's based on um, what what is a true story um that he deeply researched and got to know every aspect of the the story um and he, his style of writing, I mean, he developed a whole new genre in the writing of this book, which is the nonfiction novel. And, and he would, the writing to me was just extraordinary. You, you felt like you were with these two drifters as they walked down the steps into the basement where the family were, you know, you could smell, you could smell the cheap hair oil. You could hear the squeaking of their cheap leather jackets you could smell the fear in the air from the family who were tied up in the basement um and yeah that was, uh, i think that's th that taking the audience into the taste the smell the sense of a any of a, the scene that you're evoking has became really influential in my writing later on um i mean I, you know i love uh, James Elroy, Elmore Leonard, the people we've talked about, like um, David Hesker, Handley Wyden, 
there's obviously many resonances with you know like both with the world that he inhabits you know his indigenous american uh um uh world uh and the the experience of indigenous americans and with colonization of course uh i think there's a lot of uh, echoes um you know i love sa cosby's work um i can't i know there's a new one out and it's not out here yet and it's driving me crazy um um yeah um it, yeah i guess crime uh crime thriller is is um is, has always been my go-to and um um since age 10. <laughs> yeah. that's amazing i've never heard something quite like that uh at age 10. um are, are you um you know we had a, a program recently with uh les klinger who's annotated a new edition of um uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and going back and looking at that, um, you know, just just myself as as an adult, as opposed to reading it, you know, as a teenager or whatever. Wow, what a totally different book! And um, you know what you're yeah. talking about, you know, the the sort of the uh, the shadow the shadow side of the human yeah. psyche. Yeah, Fertile I'm, I'm actually I saw it in cold blood because I've lost my copy. I've still got the abnormal psychology textbook. Um, I've lost <laughs> the original my copy one. You still have yeah. the original? Oh wow! Yeah. My, I don't know if my brother knows it. It's realized who stole it. Um, but I lost my copy of *In Cold Blood*, and I saw it in the bookshop the other day, and I thought about buying it. And then I thought, well, actually, maybe my memory of it is more important than yeah. the actuality, so I didn't buy it. You know, that's so true. I know people often say, you know, they want to reread things, but I'm always hesitant to do it because they don't want to disturb. Although Patrick has an excellent point that you read differently you know, as a young reader than you do as an older reader. I meant to read a quote, which I think is on par with what we're talking about here by an author called Vasim Khan, who is a multicultural writer from the UK, whose books I really like. And he says this about Michael's book, Better the Blood touches on themes that have become increasingly urgent in recent years, including the far-reaching impacts of colonialism and the often uneasy integration of identity and heritage into modern multicultural society. And that's, you're talking about S.A. Cosby, you're talking about David, you're talking about yourself. And, you know, for all the backward things that keep happening, I think that we are making some progress in bringing these voices and these experiences into literature. I think what's really reassuring to me is that, you know, I mean, you can only, fix something and solve something if you talk about it and identify it. you identify the problem as the first part of solving the problem and you know I think it's it's extraordinarily uplifting to me that 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 people of color um you know the, the kinds of authors that we've been talking about um that their voices are uh being read not just by other people of color that it's it's being taken you know they're becoming names within the mainstream and and the issues that we're talking about, uh, uh, um, you know, are being recognized outside our own communities, which is, yeah, I think it's incredibly important.
So Patrick, one of your favorite authors offered this comment too about <laughs> the plot, which I love. Dion Meyer, who's a South African writer, Patrick and I are extremely fond of. So he, yeah. said, he said about Better the Blood, he said, I devoured it. And as a South African, I found great pleasure in the rugby references, <laughs> which is hardly native to Meyer, but nonetheless, you know, so rugby, that's part of part of, you know, your whole experience. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But so, I mean, you know, there's 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 some good things that the UK gave us, and <laughs> rugby's one of them. And it's it, it unites a whole lot of the Commonwealth countries um, every four years. Well, Ed, your country's actually playing decent rugby now. Um, I'm not sure how many of your readers have ever watched a game of rugby, but um, you know, the United States goes to every qualifies for every World Cup, and um, and you you win some games that you'd be really not expected to win. So. Um, for those who haven't watched rugby, it's, you know, a, it's, I guess it's as brutal as American football, except we don't wear helmets and pads and there's not all the stops and there's not two teams. There's not a defensive team and a, an offensive team. Um, we all, we have to play the whole game. <laughs> um, and the hits are massive. It's, uh, it's a pretty extraordinary sport. Yeah. So not all exports from other cultures are flora or fauna. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can you can you tell us a little bit about um, about the crime writing community in in New Zealand today? And are there any uh, writers that we may not have heard of that we we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so um, I mean, it's a very healthy it's a very healthy community. There's um, a friend of mine, Craig Sisterson. Um, organizes a, uh, a a yearly awards called the the Naya Marsh Awards, um, uh, obviously named after Naya Marsh. And um, every year there's you know dozens and dozens of of entries, and the quality of crime writing is 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 really strong in New Zealand. And 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 again, I think um, readers will have that enjoyable experience of of reading writers who work who love their genre work within their genre, but have a very specific flavor that, that they're not familiar with, you know, the, about talking about New Zealand and about New Zealand society and, and New Zealanders. I mean, we're a different breed of people. Um, 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 the, any number of authors I talked about, JP Pomari earlier, who's another Maori author um, and um, is a very, um, very prolific uh, uh, writer. Vanda Simon, um, uh, um yeah there's um i think the best way i could recommend is that um that readers have a look at um the naya marsh awards website for the the winners over the last few years because there's some extraordinary writing there it's funny i was looking up charlotte j but she was australian wasn't she i think she I think... was there's a woman named singh s-i-n-g-h um who writes for berkeley I can't remember. I keep wanting to say something like Natalie, but that's not quite not, right. Nailani or? Yeah, something. Yeah, oh, okay. and I think she is writing um, also novels right. set in New Zealand. Um, yeah. There's somebody named Paul. Paul Thomas. Oh, Paul, Paul Thomas and Paul Cleave. Paul Cleave is. Uh, Paul Cleave is who I was thinking of, but Paul yeah. Thomas also. But what I'm hoping yeah. is, I mean, one of the things that I learned about, for example, um, book selling in Australia and all is that for a long time books were manufactured in the UK and shipped 
to Australia and New Zealand. So they were expensive and oftentimes, you know, didn't show up right away. But now I think with local production, certainly in Australia um, and perhaps in New Zealand, it's much more possible to have a local, you know, a native audience, uh, writer's community being published yeah. in New Zealand. You know, it doesn't I, I have to be a UK publisher. Yeah, our, our books are still really expensive, I've got to say. Um, I, um, when the US publication happened yesterday and uh, I, I sent a link to some friends and, and they pointed out, oh, we pay twice as much for the book, <laughs> for your book yeah. here, we should, um, as in the US. So I, I, think, I think still it's the case that, you, you know, a, a lot of books are at least uh, printed in maybe in Asia or um, I'm not sure, but I, I think they tend to, the costs tend to be higher because there's still got a bit of transport cost involved. Right, well, some of it's just developing the publishing infrastructure locally mm -hmm. and whether there's enough demand for it. Australia has begun, I think Alan and Unwin, for example, you know, does its own printing and publishing in Australia, right. which really helps. And mm -hmm. I think you, you may get more books from Australia in New Zealand mm -hmm. than you do from the UK. I really don't know, but American yeah. imports are, bound to be really expensive. We ship books all over the world every day. And yeah. I can't really believe how much shipping costs. I mean, I'm yeah. stunned at the amount of money people pay, you know, to, to get books. So a lot of it, a lot of it is fans who don't even necessarily want to read the the American edition. What they want is an autographed book by an author that they yeah. admire because, you know, it's like buying a painting or something. And, yeah. and they yeah. aren't necessarily ever going to read that book. They're going to buy yeah. it in, you know, Dutch, um, but they're going to shelve it, that kind of thing. There's there's a lot that that goes on. As I say, yeah. I wish that I wish that you were here and then, you know, we would have done something. I'd quite... love to find a way to autograph some books for you. And well, but you I'd know, also well, love you to. Just, you just need to come visit us. We'll have to work on that. I want <laughs> you to be become a bestseller and then I can negotiate. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there are government grants. We've had some Australian authors who've come to visit us. And there are grants that Australia actually will make to authors to travel. You should explore mm. that, whether mm, it's absolutely. I would love a to. similar um, arts kind of a, you know, a grant that would make it possible for you. Yeah. Even if you just come to the West Coast of America, yeah. it's really yeah. it's not, you know, Air New Zealand from Auckland's eight hours to Los Angeles. I've been yeah. on flight many times. I've, I've been to Arizona a long time ago. I did a, um, a summer camp in um uh, in northern New York State, and then afterwards, uh, a friend of mine lived in who lived in Tucson. Uh, we drove all the way from uh, upstate New York to Tucson. Um, so I have been to Arizona and loved it. Yeah. Well, so. yay, uh, Patrick. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I got so carried away. I forgot to see if there are any more questions that you have from the audience. Let's see. I just put put a question out to them. Um, don't see a whole lot of questions. Um, I am looking at that hammock. God, that looks comfortable. Is that your place where you hang out? And <laughs> looks very idyllic back there. Yeah, it's not actually, a, you know, it's not a Zoom screenshot. It's uh, it's Auckland. Oh, beautiful place. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah. all right. So it's you're in an undisclosed location, is what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, I love yeah, no, this gotcha. is my backyard. We're pretty lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. How about um, how about uh, movie and TV rights for this particular book? Have those been sold? And yeah, um, uh, so it's an interesting situation. Where my 
I'm, I'm a recent author, uh, but a long-term screenwriter and director, and I have a production company with my partner, Jane. Um, and uh, so we own the rights to the book and, um, and we're developing it as a TV series, uh, collaborating um, with another New Zealand, uh, another New Zealand company and, and, and possibly we're, we're talking with a German company um, uh, because there's been a lot of interest from, you know, one of the nine translations is, is with Germany. Um, mm. so, so yeah, we're, um, we're well down the path of developing it as, uh, at one point, we did think of it as a feature film, um, but there's a complexity to the storytelling that, you know, I think we could only really do the genre storytelling as a feature film, and we wouldn't have the complexity to the cultural and uh, the other layers. Uh, you know, 90 minutes is a tough, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful form, but it's, it's tough to go deep, uh, to go really deep. Um, so, whereas, you know, six by one hour, the, this new form that, that has emerged with Amazon, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, I find this the most exciting kind of storytelling that you can do. It has that, you know, effectively it's three feature films and you can do that. You can go deep and as well as go exciting. So yeah, so we're developing as a six part TV television series. Well, we think so too. It's an absolute gift to authors and, you know, crime series to be able to do that. Um, before we leave, it's not tracking exactly what we're talking about, that there is a, a very enjoyable New Zealand crime drama called Brokenwood, which I have watched um, every episode of. And while it really is a European-centric program, it does show you different aspects of New Zealand and different parts of the culture that um, are fun. I don't know if you're a fan or not, you don't have to say so, but have you watched it at all? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, it's it's a show made by a, 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 really, a friend of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I hope the audience is able to, the readers are able to, uh, I've just finished work on a, a major crime series, which is an Irish New Zealand co-production uh, set, in, set in New Zealand about two Irish tourists who is called The Gone um, and it's coming yeah. out, it'll be coming out this year. Hopefully, I, I really hope it, uh, it will come out on the streaming platform in America. It's coming out in Europe and New Zealand. Um, two Irish, uh, travelers go missing in New Zealand and an Irish detective partners with a Māori detective in New Zealand to dis discover Ooh. what happened to them. Yeah, That sounds absolutely yeah. wonderful. I mean, most people who watch New Zealand at all in in film or whatever have seen The Lord of the Rings, which is filmed, you know, primarily on the South Island and is gorgeous, but um, there's a lot more to New Zealand than that. I really like I like Brokenwood and I'm loving listening to Michael's voice because you sound so much like the senior detective in Brokenwood. And that's one of the things I also found really fun about Brokenwood is in New Zealand, um, everybody is called senior. They're not called, you know, I think that it's a different um, terminology yeah. for the yeah. chain of command. Um, yeah. The New Zealand right. police departments are at least the one in Brokenwood, which is fun. Well, is there anything else, Patrick, or should we let Michael go? I think that's about it. Yeah. Well, it's been so enjoyable. Thank you so much, Michael, for spending time with us. Um, look at that gorgeous cover. And I didn't ask you, what does the symbol actually mean? Or is that a spoiler? So no, it's a, um, so the koru is a symbol that is uh, really, I mean, in New Zealand, you, when you've gone to Marae, Barbara, and you've seen, gone inside our meeting houses, um, which are beautiful uh, for those who don't know um, uh, a meeting house for a tribe um, is ornately and beautifully carved um, with uh, 
um, basically with the stories of the tribe and the stories of our journeys from across the Pacific to come here. And, um, and that symbol, the koru symbol, uh, is, uh, um, it, it'll, it will be always featured strongly on many carvings. It's, um, it comes from, like you'll see behind me, or just there, uh, there's some, some ferns. Um, it comes from the, the fern frond, um, uh, which is, it's actually edible, but symbolically it's about, I guess, about the cycle of life and, um, um, and uh, it also features in facial tattoos, which readers may or may not have seen with, uh, you know, with many Māori, um, I'm, I'm not tattooed, but many Māori uh, now and traditionally have um, have been tattooed uh, with tāmoko, it's called, which is indigenous tattooing here. Um, and the koru uh, is a, a significant part of um, um, many tāmoko. Um, and that symbol in the book, uh, the, as the readers will discover, is pivotal because it is uh, a symbol that was uh, on the executed chief's tāmoko on his face. Um, uh, so it becomes a key, I guess, narrative point that uh, is returned to again and again in the book. It's beautiful. It's really lovely cover design. Please tell your daughter how, how much oh, you admire it. This is gorgeous. <laughs> anyway, thank, thank you. you all very much for joining us this afternoon. Michael, I hope to see you again soon. And Patrick, we're going to go to 1950s Egypt at 7 o'clock tonight and talk about the Ten Commandments. So oh, I'll see brilliant. you then, if not before. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Awesome. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.